We're starting a new series today called Death Defeated, and um, we're continuing going through the Gospel of John. We've been, this is the longest sermon series that we've ever done in the history of uh, Hope Church. It started at Christmas in 2018, where we took a really slow look at John chapter 1 through the lens of celebrating uh, the Christmas season, and then we jumped into studying the rest of the Gospel of John from the end of chapter 1 all the way to uh, the middle of chapter 18 where we were two weeks ago. And then now as Jesus begins to take steps towards the cross, as he moves from the Garden of Gethsemane to the hill of Golgotha to the empty tomb, we're going to be looking at this final series, zeroing in, slowing down, and looking at Christ's victory over death. It's called a death uh, defeated. This is going to be the theme for our Easter series. Uh, we're going to be uh, having Easter invitations and different initiatives to try to get community members and friends and family who don't know Jesus to come on Good Friday or on Easter Sunday to hear the gospel. You'll be hearing a lot more uh, about that. But as we come to John chapter 18 verses 12 to 17, what we're going to see uh, this morning is that is that Peter is going to fail miserably. And what we're going to see is Peter's failure and the faithfulness of Jesus. Peter's biggest obstacle in being faithful to Jesus is not the soldiers or the Sanhedrin or the servants. The biggest obstacle that Peter had in following Jesus was himself. And when we think about our own discipleship, our own attempt to try to follow Jesus, what we need to understand is our unbelieving family members are not the biggest obstacle to us following Jesus. Our non-Christian friends at high school or at college are not the biggest obstacle to us following Jesus. Our financial hardship or difficulty or the materialism all around our world are not the biggest obstacle to us following Jesus. Our sexualized media and, and that the pornography is so readily available is not the biggest obstacle to us following Jesus. The biggest obstacle to us following Jesus in our families, in our school, in our work, in our purity, in our finances, in all of these things, the biggest problem is ourselves. And what we're going to see as we look at the life of Peter here, we are going to see that human beings are a complicated collection of contradictions. And Peter is going to see that perhaps for the very first time in his life. Jesus is going to orchestrate events in such a way that Peter is going to see his need for a Savior more than ever, more than ever before. So let's take a look at John uh, chapter 18, beginning at uh, verse 12. John 18, beginning at verse 12. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. 
Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas and the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living and active word. We pray that you would be present here among us by the power of your spirit, Lord, that your voice would speak through the teaching, the preaching, Lord, of this message, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would look in this story, that we would see ourselves in Peter and that we would see your goodness, your greatness, your mercy, and your power, Lord, that we would turn away from ourselves and turn uh, towards you. We pray that your spirit would move powerfully in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Did you notice the two things Peter said in response as he was denying Jesus? They say, you are not also one of his disciples, aren't you? And notice what he says. He says, I am not. As we've been studying the gospel of John together, we've noticed a number of I am statements that Jesus has made. It's taught us a lot about who Jesus is. It's one of the ways that he revealed himself. He says things like, I'm the bread of life, which shows that he's, he's what we're all hungering for. He says, I'm the light of the world. He's the one who gets us through the darkness of the present world in which we live in. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is so that we can know, just as we sang about, that it's believing in Jesus is the way to heaven. Jesus gives us all of these I am statements to teach us about himself. But here we have Peter giving an I am not statement to teach us about himself and really ultimately to teach us about ourselves. You see, John here beautifully narrates the events. Unlike any other gospel author, this flash back and forth, panning to one end of the courtyard to the other end, contrasting Jesus here and then Peter here. What we're going to see so clearly here is the failure of Peter and the faithfulness of Jesus. And so there's really no better way for me to sort of unpack this passage for you than, than to simply break it down into uh, four individual scenes. So here's scene one, the soldiers arrest Jesus. The soldiers arrest Jesus. Now, it, we need to be really careful here because it seems like things are happening to Jesus, that, that, that people are doing things to Jesus, but that's not what's really happening. Jesus is actually in complete control of this a situation. All of it is unfolding according to his 
plan. It says in verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now our Sunday school felt boards and our Hollywood reproductions of the arrest of Jesus Christ normally describe, you know, a handful of soldiers, you know, in Roman costumes. But we, we looked at uh, previously in John chapter 18 that that word band is a, it's a, it's the Greek word is spera. It's a technical military term to describe a group of at least 600 soldiers. That word commander is chiliarch. That's someone who was in charge of, of a thousand soldiers. There were hundreds. We don't know exactly the precise number, but these specific words are used to, to let us know it wasn't just a handful. The Romans were trying to protect themselves from having a riot at Passover. And so there were hundreds of Roman soldiers there. Beyond that, the officers that were sent from the chief priests. And it says here, that they bound Jesus. Now, this is, this is interesting. They choose to bind his hands, but they couldn't do anything with his mouth. Because in verse 5 and verse 6, Jesus gave his I am statement. We're about to hear Peter's I am not statements, but they said, hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, well, I am he. And when he said, I am, those soldiers, it says right there in black and white, they drew back and fell to the ground. So you can bind his hands all you want. But with the words of his mouth, he knocked over these trained uh, soldiers. And so all of this, again, Jesus is personally surrendering. This is, things aren't starting to unravel for him here. This is all working according to his plan. It says in verse 13 that they first led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Now, Annas had been the high priest as well. He was the former high priest. In fact, later on in the story, we're going to hear him. He's actually going to be referred to as the high priest. From AD uh, 6 to AD 15, he was the high priest. Now, to be the Jewish high priest was supposed to be a lifelong deal. But the Romans, to sort of make sure that they were maintaining control and they had the right person, because the high priest was sort of the ultimate inside man in terms of controlling the Jewish people, they rotated. And they didn't let high priests serve for their entire lives. Now Annas, five of his sons, a couple of his son-in-laws, uh, followed him as being, uh, as being a high priest. And so Caiaphas was the one who was uh, currently serving as high priest. He was one of his uh, son-in-laws. Now it says in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. That word expedient simply means it would be good. It would be to our advantage. Caiaphas, in speaking about Jesus, had said, you know what, if we just kill off this one guy, then we'll be able to maintain control. Too many people are following after him. We don't know how the Romans are going to respond. Caiaphas is probably thinking, if things start to spin out of control, I'm going to be removed from being high priest. So Caiaphas said, no, it, 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 it'll, it's good. It's a necessary sacrifice. Although we can't really prove that Jesus has done anything wrong, it's worth it if we just let him die so that the rest of us can continue 
on to maintain the status quo. But again, we need to understand that Jesus is about to have a trial that their mind is already made up. This is a gross act of injustice. They know they can't prove anything against Jesus. But the very person who's going to be the judge in the trial, the chief priest Caiaphas, has already said we need to kill, the, regardless of what we can prove, this guy needs to die. Now imagine, talk about innocent until proven guilty. I mean, talk about having the justice system slanted in the wrong direction. Their mind was already made up. But again, they were not the ones who ultimately were in control. The Gospel of John tells us earlier in the story in John chapter 11, it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. This is what John's referring to in chapter 18. Not that the whole nation should perish, but then notice this part. It says, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He said that Jesus needs to die for the nation, but not in the way that Jesus would die for the nation. God was superseding. He was even using the evil intentions of Caiaphas to accomplish his purposes. Keep reading, it says, And not for the nation also, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Loved ones, that's us. We're the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus did die for his people, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. But he also died to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All of those that are even represented here right now. Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied these things. So that's the first scene, the soldiers arrest Jesus. The second scene, scene two, Peter's first denial of Jesus. Peter's first denial of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now, a number of times throughout the Gospel of John, there's this reference to another disciple. At the very end of the Gospel of John, John says, hey, by the way, that other disciple, that was me. The one writing this story, I'm the other disciple disciple. Now, when we get to the, to the Easter story, when we get to the very end of the Gospel of John, the other disciple and Peter seem to always be in the same place at the same time. We always see them together. Let me show you what I mean. In chapter 13, when Jesus had just said that one of them was going to betray them, when he told them, when he predicted about Judas doing the betrayal that says one of his disciples, an anonymous disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so we have Peter and this anonymous disciple interacting. When Jesus was resurrected and Mary Magdalene discovered the empty tomb, it says she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other Disciple, this anonymous disciple whom Jesus loved. When Jesus is restoring Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, it says, Peter saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. John, for whatever reason, chose to remain anonymous in his own story. But look, look here, we can learn a little bit about, about John or this, this other a disciple who remains anonymous. It says, 
since, and I look at verse 15, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now this disciple hadn't been arrested, but as Jesus was bound and was being brought in, and as the, as the servants at the door are maintaining security, John, because he's known by the high priest and therefore known by the security staff, is able to gain access into the courtyard of the high priest. We don't know where that relationship stemmed from. But we do know that John was known, not just like an acquaintance, he was known well enough that the security was just like, oh yeah, this guy can come through. Verse 16 says, but Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, again, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now it's important for us to recognize here. So this is a servant girl. She asked a simple question. But look at the wording of the question. She says, you also are not one of his disciples. The servant girl knew that the other anonymous disciple was a disciple. And he was allowed into the courtyard. Disciples of Jesus were allowed into the courtyard. Did you follow what I'm saying? Peter had no reason to be afraid. Fear is so often irrational, isn't it? Again, we are a complicated collection of contradictions. This is the same guy. Hundreds of soldiers. And he's like, let's get the sword. Let's do this. Let me add that guy's ear. The same guy who's so courageous in one moment is so irrationally afraid in another. She says, are you also one of Jesus' disciples, just like this guy that we've let in and haven't done anything to? And yet Peter feels like he needs to lie. You see, fear can often think, can often make us think that our circumstances are somehow unique and the, law and the, and the rules that, and laws that apply to other people don't apply to us. Well, that's true for them, but that can't be true for me. It's okay for them to behave with integrity, but I can't behave with integrity because my situation is unique. I need to make sure that I am protected. The key word there is also this other disciple was allowed into the courtyard as a known disciple of Jesus. And yet Peter said, I am not. Scene three, Caiaphas interrogation of Jesus. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Verse 19 says, the, the high priest questioned Jesus about his 
uh, disciples, and I just noticed that I know there's confusion because Caiaphas is the high priest, but Annas is the one doing the questions here. I even put a typo in my PowerPoint. That should say Annas interrogation of Jesus. Because if you look at the end of verse 24, it says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas and the high priest. So you can just write Annas instead of uh, Caiaphas. I'll get that cleared up for the second service. It says that the high priest questioned Jesus. And notice how different Jesus is from Peter. Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Jesus says, you don't have to bring me in to find out what I'm really about. This is what I am really about. Not like Peter, who's totally different when he's in the garden versus when he's in the high priest's courtyard. Jesus is the same Jesus in the garden. He's the same Jesus in the courtyard. He's the same Jesus all the time. He is perfectly a consistent. So Jesus says, why are you asking me about my disciples, about his teaching. Now, Annas was probably curious about Jesus' disciples because he's confused about why Jesus was the only one who got arrested. But remember back in chapter 18, Jesus said, after he knocked the soldiers down with his words, he says, I'm the only one that you're going to take. All of these other ones are going to be set free. And because Jesus had all of the leverage, he had all of the power in this negotiation... They only arrested him. And he asks about Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, I've been teaching the same thing all of the time. I have nothing to hide. Again, it's cutting from a scene with Peter to a scene with Jesus. And there's so much contrast between the two. And when Jesus asks in verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. Then this other servant, one of the officers, struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now it's important for us as we begin in this series called Death Defeated, as we journey towards Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, this is the first recorded act of violence towards Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the irony is incredible. This officer hits Jesus because he was saying that Jesus was not treating the high priest with appropriate honor. And yet Jesus is the high priest. The one who is being dishonored is the true high priest priest. The, the high priest in the Old Testament, they were supposed to be in charge for life. And then the Romans brought in this rotating idea of appointing new high priests. But in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, it says that, that these high priests all failed because they all died. They couldn't be priests forever. But Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Whoever lives to, uh, to intercede for us. And notice how Jesus after being struck, stands his ground. We need to be careful. Jesus did teach us to turn the other cheek. And and certainly Jesus did turn the other cheek because there were a whole lot more violence coming his way, wasn't there? But turning the other cheek doesn't mean that you don't stand for truth. 
So Jesus, look at it, he holds his ground here. He says, he answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about what is wrong. All Jesus was asking for was a fair trial. Just like we have a legal system and due process and different checks and balances when one person sues another or when the, when the state brings charges against another, we have a process. The Jewish people had a process and it didn't begin with an initial interrogation of the accused. That should never happen. It shouldn't happen at night. That should never happen. The way the, the, way the trial was supposed to work is that you began by interviewing and interrogating witnesses. And that's all Jesus is asking for here. He's just asking for due process. He's just asking that they would follow what is prescribed in carrying out a legal trial. That's why Jesus says, listen, if what I'm saying is wrong, listen, I'm just reading to you out of your rule book. This is how the trial is supposed to unfold. And then he says, but if what I say is right, why do you strike me? It's interesting here, Annas is supposed to be interrogating Jesus, but who's the one asking the questions? Jesus asked the first question, well, why don't you go ask some of the witnesses? And do they give him an answer? No, just violence. When you don't have truth, all you got is violence. And then he asks another question, why are you hitting me? <laughs> why are you hitting what? Because the answer is because you don't have any truth, you don't have anything on me, but... They just dismiss him and they carry him off to, to Caiaphas, the high priest. That's scene three. Then John brilliantly now contrasts Peter with Jesus in scene four. Peter's second and third denial of Jesus. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also, again, you also, just like this other guy that we let in, that we're okay with, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. I do not belong to Jesus. I do not want to be identified with Jesus. I do not want to be associated with Jesus. I am not. Then look at verse 26. Then Peter has a legitimate reason to be feared at this point. It says, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Okay, that changes things. So they're standing around the fire and being like, oh, that was a pretty crazy arrest. Remember when we all fell over? Yeah, that was nuts. Yeah, and then my second cousin twice removed. Did you see that guy go after him with the ear? And so they're talking around the fire, and Peter's there. And remember, they're warming themselves by the fire. Now, fire does two things. It produces heat, but it also produces light. And as they're retelling the story, Peter's starting to get anxious and nervous. And then this relative who was there in the garden turns to him and says, did I not see you in the garden with him? There's a small spiritual principle here. So truly, Peter does have reason to be worried now, right? 
But we need to understand that we're always developing disciplines. The servant girl posed zero threat. And yet Peter gave in to fear on a very small thing. The second question, again, quite innocuous. It was a very small thing, but he chose to give in to fear. Then the big moment came, and he already had a lot of practice denying Jesus. And it just at that point just flowed off the tongue. We need to be very careful of being faithful in the small things. Don't think that small things don't matter. Don't think that, you know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll compromise on these little gray areas, but when, when it really matters, then I'll stand for what's true. Then I'll do the right thing. We need to be very, very careful because when that true temptation comes, have we been building up a resistance or have we, have we been breaking down all barriers to disobedience so that when the pressure is really put on, we fold up. So Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. This is the same Peter who was ready to die for Jesus in the garden. This is the same Jesus, or the same Peter, who took his sword out to try to attack the soldiers, but now he is so full of fear. Peter's biggest problem was not the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, or the servants. His biggest problem was himself. Peter was a man of such great strength and yet such immense insecurity. Peter was willing to sacrifice in one moment and yet appeared so selfish in the next. Peter was so powerful at times and yet absolutely pathetic at others, courageous and cowardly, strong and spineless. We are a complicated collection of contradictions. We're all like Peter. Have you ever noticed how sometimes in your marriage you can be so vulnerable and so humble and yet in the next moment you can be defensive and filled with pride? Have you ever noticed that you can work so hard at school to please your teacher and yet you can be so lazy helping out around the house with your parents? Have you noticed how you can be so confident in some situations and yet so overwhelmed with anxiety in others? Have you noticed that you can be so calm and patient and gentle with a complete stranger that you'll never see again and yet can be harsh and surly and abrasive to the people that you love the most? We're all like Peter. We all think we can rise to the occasion when it matters most. And sometimes, the crazy thing is, sometimes by the grace of God, we do. Peter had his moments. Everyone else was turning away from Jesus in John chapter 6 when he gave a hard teaching. Peter said, to whom shall we turn? You have words of eternal life. Yes, Peter. Right on. Sometimes we do rise to the occasion and yet sometimes we fail miserably in the big things and even in 
the small things. Why is it that we are so often a different person at work than we are at home, than we are with our friends, than we are at church? It's because of sin. It's because of selfishness. And Peter came to this realization when the rooster crowed. Just echoing into the night sky. The moment, notice what it says. And at once, as soon as that third and final denial left the lips of the apostle Peter, the rooster crowed. Every now and again, the rooster crows in our lives. Every now and again, we look ourselves in the mirror and we wonder, how did I get like this? Every now and again, we step outside of ourselves and listen to the words that are coming out of our mouths and we wonder, how did I become like this? Every once in a while, we shut down our computer or our phone after giving our eyes to debauchery and wickedness and and wondering, who am I? What am I doing? Every once in a while, the rooster crows. And we realize how sinful and wicked and inconsistent we are because of our selfish sinfulness. Loved ones, we need the rooster to crow in our lives. But here's what we need to remember. The rooster doesn't get the last word. As important as it is for us to understand what happens with Peter, as important as it is for us to understand what that means for us, the rooster does not get the last word. In fact, we can remember that Jesus, in fact, predicted that this would happen. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Peter says, you shouldn't wash my feet. You never wash my feet. Then Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. Then then Peter says, well, wash my whole body then. But then Jesus says, you are clean. He tells Peter, listen, you belong to me. You're forgiven. My grace is on your life. He calls Peter clean. But then, in the very same chapter, he predicts that Peter would deny Jesus three times. Jesus says he's going to die. He says he's going to be crucified. And then Peter says in John chapter 13, verse 37, Peter said to him, I will lay down my life for you. Peter was so confident. Listen, we are the most vulnerable to failure when we are the most confident in ourselves. He says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That very night, Peter was so sure that he was ready to die for Jesus. And within hours of that happening, he would have denied the one who he said he would die for. You see, Peter was ready to die for Jesus, but Peter didn't know he needed Jesus to die for him. 
And Jesus predicted and orchestrated and arranged all of these events in Peter's life so that Peter would recognize and know that it wasn't about Peter dying for Jesus. It was about Jesus dying for him. Jesus wisely and lovingly arranged all of these circumstances, a tailor made specific to his temperament and his personality to expose his weaknesses, his selfishness, his ugliness, his failure, his fallenness, and his pride. He tailor made this event, this rooster crow moment, for Peter to realize his need for a savior. And listen, Jesus did it for Peter, and he does it for us. That when we have those rooster crowing moments in our life, it's for a purpose. It's for us to see our need for a Savior. Jesus wants us to see how we say, I am not. It's okay to say, I am not. You just got to say things like, I am not strong. But Jesus is strong. I am not faithful, but Jesus is faithful. I am not consistent, but Jesus is consistent. I am not worthy, but Jesus is worthy. Earlier that night, Jesus with his disciples shared a meal with them. He took bread and he took wine and he equated the bread with his body. He said, this is my body which is given for you. And he took the wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He says, it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of Peter's sins in the past and the forgiveness of Peter's sins in the very near future. Peter took that bread and drank that cup thinking about how committed he was to Jesus, not knowing that he was going to fail so miserably in a matter of hours. That's why Jesus told his disciples when they break bread, he says, as often as you eat it, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. That's why in the Lord's prayer it says, forgive us our sins right after it says, give us our daily bread because we need forgiveness as much as we need bread. Every day we need a reminder that Jesus loves us and suffered and died for us. So loved ones, as we prepare to take the bread, as we prepare to take the cup, do we know our need for a Savior? Do we know that we need Jesus Or do we think that Jesus somehow needs us? Sometimes in rooster crowing moments, we think, well, I, uh, man, yeah, I really haven't been living for the Lord this week. I've been, there's been a pattern of sin in my life. Sometimes we think, well, I definitely should not take communion today because, because I haven't been living the way that I should. If you're thinking that way, you need to understand that that is completely missing the point of what's about to take place here. We don't take the bread in the cup because we are worthy. We take the bread in the cup because we are unworthy. Do you understand? The whole point of the cross is understanding that we are sinners. And so please do not allow the tray to pass you by. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do not allow the tray to pass you by. 
if you think that somehow you are unworthy, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then this table is open to you. If, if you're here today to support a family member or a friend invited you, if you're here today because you're learning about, you want to learn more about Jesus or about religion, listen, we, we want you to know that what's about to happen right now is something that's really intended only for believers in Jesus Christ. Only for those who have recognized, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. Yes, he suffered and died on the cross for me. And so if you have questions, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. But just as the tray comes to you, then you can pass it along. But I'm going to pray for us right now. And then the ushers will be passing out the communion elements. And so let's bow our heads our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has made it possible for us to be forgiven. Lord, we thank you that although we are sinners, your grace abounds to us. And Lord, we thank you that you even orchestrate events in our lives, tailor-made for our personality, for our temperament, Lord. So that we could know the depths of our sin and so that we could know the greatness of your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us. What we're about to do is called communion. We pray that we would truly commune with you, that we would experience and know and delight in your presence in this moment, Lord. God, we thank you for the bread. We thank you that your son came in a body as real as the bread that we hold in our hands. We thank you for the cup. We thank you that his blood, his life was given. His blood was shed so that death could be defeated. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.